Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unlocking the Potential of Assessments, the show that delves into creating, delivering, and reporting on valid and reliable assessments. In each episode, we chat with assessment luminaries, influencers, subject matter experts, and customers to discover and examine the latest in best practice guidance for all things assessment. I'm your host, John Kleeman, founder of Question Mark and EVP of Industry Relations and Business Development at Lonosity, the assessment technology company. Today, we're really pleased to welcome Professor Philip Dawson, who is the Associate Director of the Centre for Research in Assessment and Digital Learning, Cradle, at Deakin University in Australia. Phil has degrees in education, artificial intelligence, and cybersecurity, and he leads Cradle's work on cheating, academic integrity, and assessment security. This work spans hacking and cheating on online exams, training academics to detect contract cheating, student use of study drugs, the effectiveness of legislation at stopping cheating, and the evaluation of new assessment security technologies. He's written numerous books, and Phil's work on cheating is part of his broader research into assessment, which includes work on assessment design and feedback. And in his spare time, Phil performs improv comedy and produces the academic-themed comedy show, The Peer Review. Welcome, Philip. I expect a joke every second. <laughs> Thanks so much, John. Um, we will see how we go there, but it's a joy to be here. No, it's very good to have you here. So the question I, I sort of tend to ask everybody is, how did you get into assessment? Yeah, so I guess I was in an academic development role uh, at a large university, and I kind of followed whatever the needs of the organisation were. And gee, there were some some issues with assessment, so I was tasked with going out there and learning more about assessment. Uh, I wrote a research grant. I thought I'd better do this. I'd better do it about assessment, and I chucked a bunch of assessment luminaries on there. And uh, I guess the the rest is history. You know, assessment appealed to me as well as a topic area because there's this this great uh, quote by Paul Ramsden that says, from the student's perspective, the assessment defines the actual curriculum. And that was my experience as an educator and as a student. So do you think it's true that the assessment does define the curriculum? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, and I think we see this particularly in on online learning these days where there are a lot of time poor, quite strategic learners who sort of do a, a working backwards approach from the assessment to guide their learning. I don't think we have this this time of students luxuriating on campus and just chilling out and sitting around and, and learning stuff so much anymore, at least not in the context I'm in. So talk me through what you did, sort of how you got to where you are, uh, what your career journey has been like. Yeah, sure. So I initially trained in computer science. I uh, thought I was going to be a computer scientist, started a PhD in robotics. It, it was fascinating, but alongside that, I'd always been interested in learning and teaching. I started teaching in the dot-com boom at the age of 20 because um, no one else was available to teach it. So they just got me a later year undergrad to teach stuff. Um, I did a PhD in education, ended up moving from sort of roles that were quite teaching intensive over to academic integrity roles. Um, I did a collaboration with David Bowd, who's a, a real leading assessment researcher. Um, he's the director of the centre I'm in now. And gee, assessment just seemed like the the most powerful thing I could be studying, you know, the thing with the most leverage to change and also the thing that sort of both helped and hurt people the most. So I, 
I got obsessed with that. And then Dave started a research center at the university I'm at, which is Deakin University. And I applied for the associate director job. So I'm sort of Dave's second in charge at this center. Um, and I've just been obsessed with assessment ever since. That's great. Well, you're a perfect uh, person to have on the, on the podcast because we're very assessment here. So tell me about the kinds of things that uh, you and Cradle research into. Yeah, so I guess in some ways it's, it's what it says on the tin, you know, assessment and digital learning. But that sort of broadens out to quite a large set of things. We're largely in higher education, but we also do work with sort of other things, post-secondary, things like uh, collaborations with medical colleges. We have a real strength in work around feedback. So some of the, the big shifts that have happened in the feedback literature over the past decade have come out of Cradle or we've been in the room when they've, they've happened. Um, and within that, a lot of the work's around sort of how could we equip students so they're capable to make the most of feedback. Um, we've got a line of work around the digital, uh, what the students' experience is in this sort of digital environment, not just sort of an ed tech focus, but more of a, a broad, almost sociological focus of what's the, the broad student life in this digital world. And then I run a program of work around what I call assessment security, uh, which I distinguish from academic integrity, which is more of a sort of positive educative approach. I am interested in how can we assure the security of our exams, tests, assignments, all that stuff. So look, I would love to ask you more about feedback and more about assessment security. But first of all, tell me about the comedy. Oh, yes, yes. So uh, about five years ago, I got into improv comedy, which is a uh, style of comedy where we make it all up on the spot. I did it because academia is pretty serious and I wanted a bit of a something different. So I, I sought out classes, took classes in it and gradually started getting into performing. Uh, I've got a, a show on tomorrow night and the next night, which is to show the frequency that I do this, not to encourage people to come to these particular shows because your audience is all around the world. Um, but the thing I'm most uh, proud of is this show, The Peer Review, where we get an academic in to talk about their research and then we do comedy about that. And if you have any audience who's in Melbourne, Australia, who wants to find out about it, they can Google it and they'll find us. Well, next time I come to Melbourne, I must uh, check you out, or perhaps you'll do a, a guest show when you visit Europe. So tell us about feedback. What, if you're constructing an assessment that gives feedback, what are the key things that people should think about? Okay, so often with feedback, we think, how can I provide the best comments to students? And I really respect and admire that motivation. But what I challenge people to do is shift from, how can I give really good comments to how can we make this a really effective feedback situation? So yes, yeah, some of that's going to be the comments that you, the educator, provide to students, but some of it's going to be the context that you set up for students to make use of those comments within. A lot of feedback comments get end-loaded right at the end of a sequence of tasks where someone doesn't really have a use for them. No matter how great your comments are, if they're at the final terminal point, that's one of the least effective places for them. So thinking about how can we build a situation where people can use the comments? Because ultimately, no matter how great comments are, if they're not used by the person, we've just wasted everyone's time. I mean, back in the day, I used to have a box with all of these uncollected assignments that I'd written all these lovely comments on. 
uh, we would say now that that's a, a feedback graveyard. It's, there's, nothing, there's nothing useful in there. So really thinking about that, thinking about the capability of students as well. So how can we build the capability so that they can make best use of it? We might want to consider talking about how we make use of comments. Uh, a couple of my colleagues, Margaret Beam and Liz Malloy, have called this intellectual streaking, which they now call intellectual candor because I think streaking was a bit too risque <laughs> outside the Australian context. But um, <laughs> this idea that we should lay bare our processes with things like feedback. What do we do when we get really hard feedback? Um, and, and I guess the other thing is maybe think about the instances where we've said we don't have to do feedback and really challenge that. So, you know, on, say, exams, sometimes there's an opinion that exams are exempt from feedback. I'd like to really challenge that. Yeah, certainly. I know a lot of um, certification exams don't give feedback, partly for exam security reasons. What, what about sort of or more automated feedback for sort of multiple choice or other objective questions. What's your guidance there? Yeah, so there's this fascinating result from the multiple choice literature about, uh, I think they call it the memorial effects of multiple choice testing. That's a paper title where they look at what do people learn from multiple choice? And people can learn false facts from multiple choice. When you select the distractor answer, you could walk away from that test believing it as fact. And that's that's dangerous. But there's also research that shows that uh, immediate feedback completely counteracts that effect. So I would say we should probably consider feedback in those contexts if we can. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that this sort of learning false facts means multiple choice is bad. The testing effect was still found to be more powerful than the sort of false facts effect. You know, the testing effect being people learning from being tested, that, that testing is a powerful thing for learning. Which I think is, is based around retrieval practice, that by giving people a chance to retrieve things, that reinforces memory, is that yeah. right? Yeah, very much. And, you know, I'd still definitely support that. But if we can also provide some immediate feedback, we can really improve that learning. And it, it could be all sorts of forms of feedback. It doesn't have to be individual educators providing it to students. As you said, automated feedback can be really powerful. And is it best to give feedback immediately or later or both? Or So there's sort of two things we want to consider with timeliness of feedback. One of them is how close it is to the performance that the student has done. So in this case, the, the test. Uh, we want things to be close to that. And the other thing we want to consider is what follow-up task is the student going to do where they're going to make use of that feedback? And we want to give people enough time so they can really make use of that. So if we, ha if we have a series of tests, uh, they're spaced out, the more time we give someone prior to the next test, the better. Something I'd really like to explore uh, that I think there's a real gap in the market around is the sort of re-presentation of past feedback to students at the point where it's going to be most useful for them. So you did this well in this test and you've got another test three months later. How about there's a way that in the period that we think you're going to be studying, say a couple of weeks before this second test, we automatically send you the feedback that's going to be most useful to you and say, hey, this is this is what you might need to focus on. So sort of just-in-time feedback, a bit like they're talking about just-in-time learning in the corporate world. Yeah, absolutely. So if people want to learn more about feedback, any, any resources you can suggest that uh, 
would be good. Yeah, so we we did a large national project called Feedback for Learning. Uh, The resources for that project are on feedbackforlearning.org. Um, and that's got a lot of a lot about feedback across different disciplinary contexts. A lot of it's about feedback in very large scale contexts. So, you know, in Australian universities, we have classes of sort of a thousand students or more. So it's that sort of wow. scale, things that could actually work at scale. So that's really interesting on feedback. As I know a lot of people put a lot of time putting feedback into assessments and I think there's some really interesting insights there. Let's let's sort of change the subject completely and go on to assessment security. And let's first of all hear, because I think you've just uh, published a book on assessment security, which in fact I've just ordered but I haven't read yet. Yeah, yeah. So I, I published a book, uh, Defending Assessment Security in a Digital World. It, it's kind of a, a funny story. I had been really interested in writing a book on that. And in the Australian summer of 2019 to 2020, I just worked for seven weeks and hammered this book out. I've been thinking about it for years. And then there's this COVID-19 thing coming, but I, I don't even mention that in the book. And then bang, we're all in lockdown, especially in Melbourne, where we had one of the, the longest lockdowns in the world. And we're all doing online assessment. So all of this sort of body of work that I'd pieced together suddenly was was really important. It's a, it's a book that covers sort of what can we do to secure assessment in a world where we're not physically there with students? Uh, what seems to work? What seems to not work? How could we draw in uh, some learnings from other disciplines like uh, how, how does the online gambling world deal with cheating? How do online, how's online gaming deal with cheating? What cybersecurity think? What's artificial intelligence think about this? Yeah, so just try to piece together many different disciplines and come up with some practical steps that people can do to improve their assessment security. So what would be your advice to people trying to reduce cheating at tests? There's a few steps. So one of them is to really think about the learning outcomes that are being assessed And if you could avoid assessing lower level learning outcomes, try and do so because lower level learning outcomes are so much easier to cheat in tests on. Um, I can cheat your, you know, lower level learning outcome exam potentially with a post-it note on my screen that, you know, various tools won't find. Whereas higher level learning outcomes are much more challenging. I need to use more sophisticated cheating approaches to try to cheat in those. So that's, that's one step. So, and just to check, uh, clarify that we're talking about not testing knowledge, testing beyond recall, high, high levels of the Bloom's taxonomy. Yeah, absolutely. So, in in your various uh, learning outcomes taxonomies, at the bottom level, we've got basically your ability to memorize and recall uh, different things. And I'm not saying that's not important. You know, I'm in the higher education space and we have classes like anatomy and physiology where it's really important that you can recall the names of the bones and muscles, etc., in the body. And I don't want to go to my doctor and they have to do the, you know, the hip bones connected to the leg bone or, or whatever. So I, I do respect the need for automaticity around lower level knowledge, but we have to understand that it's really hard to assess that in a secure way. So if we can jettison those in circumstances where they don't matter so much and go higher level, there's just fewer ways to cheat on those higher level outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's one thing. And I'd say, you know, don't, I mean, this is going to be super obvious to a lot of your listeners, but <laughs> it, it's funny. It's, it's not to everyone. Uh, 
don't do high stakes, unsupervised online exams. It's just one of the, mm-hmm. I, I really think it's one of the worst practices that we have. Uh, in some higher ed contexts, up to 60% of the marks in a given uh, course subject unit can be unsupervised multiple choice. And I just think that's, that's horrendous. We know that students collaborate and collude and all sorts of other things on those. Now, I say high stakes because it can be really effective to use unsupervised multiple choice as a, as a learning aid. Have it low stakes, have it something that's part of a sequence of tasks. That's great. But as a high stakes thing, it's, it's really questionable. A third thing that I want to mention is really zooming out from the level of an individual test to if you have a sequence of tests or if you have a whole large course or something, try to view those all together as a program and think for whatever award I give people at the end of this, how am I sure across this sequence that they've done it themselves in the circumstances we've asked them to do? In the higher ed space, you know, I I talk with people about, think about the security of the degree. Don't think about the security of just the individual task. And there might be some moments where it really matters to secure the task and, and really invest heavily there. You know, there's there's some approaches that seem pretty good for, for those high stakes moments. Interactive oral assessment is one that we encourage in higher ed. Um, there's, you know, work around remote proctoring in those contexts. Remote proctoring is imperfect, but there's good evidence that it reduces rates of cheating. So it it has a deterrent effect. People do tend to score lower in remote proctored versus unsupervised tasks. There's at least a dozen studies on that. Uh, It's not perfect at detecting cheating. I can guarantee you I could cheat in any given remote proctored exam if you give me enough time to prepare and think about it. But, you know, overall it's going to be pretty good. And and if I may, one last thing. I said my last one was the last one. No, no, lots of, lots of uh, interest in this. Yeah, you can uh, uh, okay, more. Um, carry on. The really big thing to think about is how we layer many types of interventions together in a sort of Swiss cheese approach. As a researcher called Reason, who proposed this a long time ago, that we, when we're dealing with sort of trying to reduce risk or, or problems like this, rather than looking for a perfect intervention, we might get many imperfect interventions and layer them like Swiss cheese, where the holes don't all line up and things might get past one or two of these interventions, but they don't get past everything. In the pandemic, we've seen this with, you know, imperfect vaccines and imperfect masks, imperfect social distancing and a whole bunch of other interventions that we as a society decided to layer together because they do a better job than any single intervention. And Kiata Rundle has proposed that we should do this with cheating and academic integrity and assessment security, that we might want to layer imperfect approaches. And that's how something like remote proctoring, which is imperfect, can still have a role to play as a layer of Swiss cheese in an overall model. So essentially, I think what you're suggesting is don't try and have a multiple assessment event so that each individual assessment event isn't so crucial. And then for all your assessment events, have a sort of multi-layered Swiss cheese time model of different uh, security interventions or, or approaches. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in different contexts, there's going to be an appetite for different sorts of approaches. You know, I know that... Um, the thing I said about cutting out the lower level learning outcomes, that's not going to appeal to people in some context, but 
in that context, you might decide that, oh, we can't invest in interactive oral assessment for everybody, but we're going to do a random audit of people. So we're going to pick a name out of a hat and we're going to have an interactive conversation with that person and we're going to know that, like, all the students are going to know that that's the thing that happens, like with sort of tax fraud where we know that they don't audit everyone but there's a chance I might get audited so I don't defraud my uh, tax office. So, you know, things like that. We might decide, oh, our Swiss cheese approach is going to consist of these layers, which are different to the layers used in some other context. So let's talk a little bit more about remote proctoring, because in the corporate and high-stakes sort of certification world, it's pretty routine, because everybody's used to being on Zoom calls and things like that all the time, and so just being uh, taking your test in front of it. But in the higher education university world, it does seem to be a little bit more controversial, with uh, some people saying it's sort of terrible and others saying that it, it just is common sense. What about the privacy aspects of videoing people who might be at home or other things? So I, I have the um, joy that whenever I give a talk about remote proctoring, I get the remote proctoring haters telling me that I'm biased, uh, pro-remote proctoring, and I get, I've had some pretty nasty uh, tweets and emails. And then I also get nasty tweets and emails from the people who are uh, pro-remote proctoring who tell me you hate it and you're being unreasonable and, and all that. And, and that makes me think I'm probably on the right track. So, yeah, I... I developed some guidelines for our higher education regulator, TEXA, Tertiary Education Quality Standards Agency in Australia, around the use of remote proctoring. And there's, there's a lot of considerations. One thing that I learned in sort of the process of writing that was that a lot of what we think are problems with remote proctoring are problems with poor use of remote proctoring. You know, there was uh, famously pictures of jugs of urine from students sitting a remote proctored exam. Um, and, and this was used to claim that, you know, remote proctoring is terrible because it doesn't give people bathroom breaks. No, that that's a choice. Not giving people bathroom breaks in a remote proctored exam is a design choice that's been made there. Um, there's stuff around, you know. A very, a very odd design choice I, I, in my view, but uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. But it's, it's not an inherent fault with remote proctoring. It's, it, the same could be said if we didn't let students have bathroom breaks in face-to-face exams. Um, so, you know, you've got that. You've got things about remote proctoring being uh, biased, you know, against people with dark skin. And certainly there have been instances where that's happened. It's not an inherent thing in it that's, that's mandatorily a part of all of it. That's a a bad implementation of it that I agree is a, a, a racist one that comes with all these problems, but it, it's also not inherent to remote proctoring. So I think we do need to shake out what's poor practice that we would all agree is, is terrible, abhorrent stuff to do, and then what's stuff that's inherent within remote proctoring. So certainly the privacy concern to me is a real one, that no matter what your implementation of it, we are doing a trade-off of privacy for assessment security. Now, I've done interviews with students and you know, we've done surveys and all that sort of stuff, and it, it really wasn't an issue for most students, the, the privacy part. The trade-off of uh, being at home in your pyjamas for the privacy invasion was very much a trade-off a lot of these students were happy to do. We our students hate finding parking on campus and all, all that set of things. I think we do need to ask 
about sort of the, the normalisation of surveillance and if this is something that we're happy to do. Uh, I think we should have frank conversations with our students about why we do this and why we think it's an acceptable trade-off in this circumstance, but we're not sort of endorsing mass surveillance as a, as a general concept and I think we need to have a conversation with people about that. And then I think we need to have conversations about the efficacy of remote proctoring. Um, I have gone out and asked many vendors of remote proctoring tools if they'll let me do a study where I try to cheat in their exams and publish about that. There's been no appetite for that sort of study. And look, I understand it. No one wants a bad news bit of research, but the danger to them is that there now are studies coming out where people haven't made that request. They've just gone and done the study without a partnership and they've just gone and published these results. Um, and I think we need better partnerships between researchers in cheating and proctoring vendors about, you know, how can we do this in partnership in a responsible way so the researchers let the proctoring vendors know when there's problems and we work together to address them. Because uh, I think we're at the moment veering off into another direction where researchers are just kind of trashing the space and <laughs> publishing all this stuff. Um, I'd prefer sort of a what the security world calls responsible disclosure model. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, that sounds interesting, and maybe we could uh, talk about that outside that. Uh, but I think the Swiss cheese model seems very good, but clearly proctoring on its own is not going to stop all cheating, but it will reduce it and uh, and the combination of, of that, that and other things. Let's move on to AI and the future and things. So I, I guess it doesn't apply so much to sort of more objective or multiple choice type questions, but essays, I know there are tools out there that can write essays for you. How's that impacting the world of higher education? So I really think in the next few months uh, to a year, we're going to see higher education need to change its assessment designs radically because the tools that I use can produce not great work, but they can produce passable work. And we have a real standards problem at where that pass level is in higher education. We've got to remember the pass level is where we give you a degree. That's a, that's a big deal. And these AI tools can produce that sort of pass level in a variety of different assessment types. They are much more sophisticated than we give them credit for. Um, you know, it's not just sort of standard text stuff. You can get AI to write you computer code. Um, and the really fascinating thing is the AI, like something like GPT-3, which is one of the models, was trained on just text from the internet, but it learned how to write computer software because there's enough text on the internet that tells you how to write computer software that you could ask it to do that. I could ask um, the tool that I use to write me a limerick on a topic and it gives me a pretty decent limerick. They're, they're sophisticated tools that know quite a lot. Now, there's this one line of thinking that says, let's ban them, but I, I don't think we want to go there because these tools are part of authentic professional practice. The other line of thinking is let's try and accommodate them into our assessment. And I think that's where we want to go. We don't want to let students use them all the time because we do need students to learn how to do fundamental things in the absence of those supports. But we also don't want to tell students all the time you can't use these tools because it's like my year eight maths teacher telling me you know, you can't use a calculator because you won't have it in your pocket with you all the time. And, and I do now very much have it in my pocket and on my wrist. Mm. So, I mean, the future is going to be 
uh, everybody's going to have AI tools and AI helpers and, and things. Uh, and assessment needs to take that into account is what I think you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we need to think of this as an increase in human capability rather yeah, than yeah, a, yeah. a threat to integrity. You know, so the the things that final year university students will be able to do in five years' time will be much greater and grander than what they were able to do uh, just a few months ago, you know, because they'll have these tools and it will increase their capability. And so what's, how does the future of assessment look? Oh, great question. Um, <laughs> there's a... We try and address this in uh, one of our books, Reimagining University Assessment in a Digital World, and there's a great chapter in there by uh, Margaret Beerman and Rose Luckin uh, that talks about, so if AI can do everything or increasing amount of things, what do we need to do in assessment? And they say we need to look at what's fundamentally human. What do humans still need to be able to do in this world and how do we map that back to assessment? And a key capability they talk about is evaluative judgment, which is your understanding of what quality looks like and your ability to make decisions about quality in your own work and the work of others. And they argue that this is going to remain quite a human capability, that students will use these tools, but they'll need to make judgments about the quality of them. You know, my, my friends who are copywriters who, whose job has changed from writing copy to using AI tools that write copy, their job relies on their expertise with text and writing, you know, their understanding of what good is and their ability to see good in the outputs of these AI systems. And I think that's going to be a, an increasingly important capability in this new world. Very interesting. Thank you. And just remind us of your book title again. Uh, the book is Reimagining University Assessment in a Digital World. Ah. That's the second book. I've, I've plugged ah, two ah, books. Oh, you plugged two books. So the first book was Defending <laughs> you, you Assessment thought... Security in a Digital World. Oh, well, it, it might, uh, it's late at night here as recording this because uh, Phil Phillips is in, in Melbourne and I'm in London. So the, 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 the first book was Defending Assessment Security in a Digital World and the second book is... Reimagining University Assessment in a Digital World. The digital world part is um, quite funny. I, I didn't think of it when I was naming the... Uh, assessment security book that we'd used that part of the title already, but it it fits. It's about the same idea. Okay, okay. Well, I must uh, get, get that one as well. R thank you, Philip. It's been really, really interesting uh, uh, talking to you today. Uh, and thank you to the audience as well. Thank you for listening, and we really appreciate your support. Don't forget, if you've enjoyed this podcast, why not follow us through your favorite lis listening platform? Also, please reach out to me directly at johnaquestionmark.com with any questions, comments, or if you'd like to keep the conversation going. You can also visit the Questionmark website at questionmark.com to register for any of our many best practice webinars we host host monthly and uh, do check out philip dawson's books uh he speaks very well and i'm sure you write very well as well Th thanks again everybody and please tune in for another exciting podcast discussion we'll be releasing shortly